poverty does not align with where I'm trying to take my family. It's literally a conversation I can't afford to have. Right. And also, I've really grown my faith in money and how deserving I am of it. And I, I must admit that whilst people might not see it as such, that feeling, the feeling of me being worthy is really what turns the stomachs of a lot of white people who have a problem with me. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Candice Brathwaite is a mother of two and the founder of the UK-based initiative Make Motherhood Diverse, which seeks to challenge the usually singular narrative of motherhood. She is also a writer and influencer, and her first book is I Am Not Your Baby Mother, an urgent part memoir, part manifesto book about Black British motherhood. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I am here with my darling, dear friend, Candice Brathwaite. The first time we met, it was the other way around. She was interviewing me. So I get to now return the favor to this amazing being. And I know this is going to be an incredible conversation. So welcome, Candice. Oh, babe, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. I had so much fun. And it's really wild to think about the fact that when we were last together, that was just (laughs) a few months ago. And I was touring in the UK for my book tour. Um, I got the chance to be in conversation with you at Waterstones and I traveled to Nottingham and to Scotland and then back to London. And now we're home, social distancing. It's happened so quickly. So quickly. But it also feels like it's a new year. It feels like 2021. Or (laughs) (laughs) 2020.5. The speed with which we've had to change our lives has Mm -hmm. taken my breath away. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember us having a good time, even hugging people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is now so foreign yeah. and also heartbreaking. Yeah, but yeah. we do it for the safety of, of others. Of others, right. Stay, so. stay in our butts at home, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's kick off with our first question, Candice. I've had the pleasure of having an advanced copy of your book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, and so... I feel like I'm going to know some of the answers to this question, but I can't wait for you to share it with our listeners. Who are some of the ancestors, living or transitioned, familial or societal, who've influenced you on your journey? Definitely my dad, who has transitioned. I feel him so heavily at very strange times never the times when I'm sad or down but if I'm in the middle of a business deal he's literally all up in my business 
like do not let them bluff you do not let them cheat you remember my ways of moving and I'm I'm really really grateful to him for that guidance from afar living definitely my maternal granddad mm. without a doubt so interestingly even though I I am a staunch feminist a lot of male energy yeah. ancestrally for me yeah two really strong men who without them you wouldn't know who Candice Brathwaite is for mm. sure and I feel like, and this is not to dismiss the work the women have done in my life, but I feel like without those two men, I wouldn't be the woman I am, which is really interesting. Yeah, I sense that. And I could get that from reading your book, that they seemed to have both instilled in you a great sense of self-worth. And I think with your grandfather, your maternal grandfather, it felt like as I was reading it, he really gave you the permission to be all of yourself, right? If you need to cry, cry. He raised you. You, yeah. you weren't raised at the beginning by your, your mom and your dad. It was your maternal grandfather who raised you, yeah. right? So this maternal, paternal energy happening mm-hmm. for you. And then with your father, I really got that sense of he really taught you these skills and to be really alert and to be aware. Don't let people fool you. Don't let people run you have common sense and know how to take care of yourself, which is so priceless. Yeah. Their energies combined because before it was hip to lobby for men taking time off work for paternity and all of that stuff. Like my granddad was doing this at a time where his friends would mock him. Like you're a stay at home man. What even is that? You eye in the clothes. What does that even mean? And so without knowing it, my granddad especially gave me an example of perhaps the man who would be good for me right. because I know I can't iron. I don't know what the best pot in the house is. And to have been doing this parenting thing with a West African man born in West Africa mm. who is completely comfortable with me not doing the things that are feminine Right. And like that is something that was shown to me from a really early age. Right. I'm really grateful for it because it means that I can focus on doing what I am good at, which most women aren't allowed to say, especially black women aren't allowed to say. Right. I'm good at making money. Yeah. And I need the space to do that. Right. I can't think about business and also be like, oh, do the are the kids' school uniform ironed? I can't do Right, right, right. And I love this so much because as I was reading your book and I was telling you before we hit record that I was I was reading a part of your book today and it was the chapter in which you were talking about you were pregnant with Esme and you really wanted a bugaboo pushchair. And first of all, this was hilarious to me because I remember for us, the pushchair was a huge thing. And we got, we didn't get bugaboo, but we got what has now become the norm, at least here in, in Qatar, which is the Swedish stock or stocky. I don't know how you pronounce it. When we got it, nobody had it. So we were like, oh, we are so much pride, like the Mercedes Benz, right? Of of push chairs. But I remember reading your chapter on that and you were talking about you wanted to buy this push chair and you knew it was what, 1,300 pounds. And at that time you weren't making a lot of money like you are now. And you said to your husband, this is how much it is. And he said, are you mad? 
is the pushchair also going to send our kid to Oxford University? And I cackled, like I laughed so hard. And my husband is sitting next to me. He's like, what's so funny? So I read it to him and he goes, that sounds like me. Like, I'm like, because it's very African. It's a very African thing to say. <laughs> he was like, do we not have some old bed sheets? Like, just tie the baby to your back. And I was like, listen, I'm going to see this new mum and flourish. Right. And I think I say it some chapters down, or maybe even in the same chapter. It completely winds me up when people, normally white people, mm chastise young black people for wanting to look good right I'm like listen for a long time that's all we had all we had was our Sunday best we weren't even allowed to interact with certain people so from our look alone we were trying to create this demeanor which more often than not didn't necessarily match what we had in our pockets right and also didn't match up with the message that was being given to us of being inferior like that look of clean, perfect, wearing beautiful things is a survival mechanism, right? It's a rebellion. It's a revolt of sorts to say, I'm not what you're saying I am. Exactly. Yeah. So for me in that moment, buying that pushchair was just another way of putting a pretty plaster on a gangrene limb. Right. I knew good and well that trying to even acquire something like that would mean it was you're eating rice at home for the rest of the month. Right. But I'm already petrified of becoming a mum, becoming a mum in a space that does not respect black motherhood. Right. Or the idea that a black family can be unified. So I'm quickly thinking, right, how many ways can I protect myself from the constant stereotypes that I know are about to come my way. Mm. And for some reason, for me, that manifested in a pushchair, which is so strange. Well, I don't think it is, because in reading I'm Not Your Baby Mother, was reminded of so many things from my first pregnancy. I remember reading Ina May Gaskin's book. I remember reading what to expect when you're expecting, right? I remember seeing the images of motherhood and all it was was white, 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 white and mm-hmm. these standards of what good motherhood looked like. And to be clear, there's a difference between wanting good things for your child versus trying to fit into a model of what is seen as somebody who's thriving because they have certain things versus somebody who's seen as being lesser than because they don't have those brand names or they don't have those things. and. It's not to say, and I, I really want to talk about money in this conversation because you're such a huge advocate for that. And it's one of the reasons I so love and respect you. But I want to create a legacy of multi generational wealth for my family. And I want to do it on my terms. Yes. And not because of what white supremacy says about me. Yes. Yeah. Completely. I'd gone a few chapters or a few drafts in and I read that stuff back to myself. I was like, ah, Mm. but you were making that choice from a place of white supremacy. Right. Even in now becoming a mother, I'm still mothering myself through some things. Absolutely. I'm like, ah, girl, check yourself. That was actually for their gaze, not even for you. Right. Because you learn this through the act of doing, but now I'm on my second child. I was like, is it safe? Is it kind of cute? Right. Does it fit my budget? Then we're good to go. Right. Not what are the mums in the mums group going to say when I rock up, right? Nothing. Yeah. But I had to 
learn through that process. And I think writing this book just made me grapple with a lot. Even my editor is like, once I'd handed it in, she was like, and you're going back to therapy, yes? I was like, no, mind your business. (laughs) Mind your business. Don't put pressure on me. (laughs) Because it was the book that I consistently ran away from writing. And I could feel that. So as I was reading it, first of all, I want to say thank you for this this huge gift. It's the first book of its kind for me to see as a Black British mother, although not being a British mother in Britain, but still a Black British mother. And to be able to, it's like you have this great mesh between sharing your personal stories and your personal experiences, some of which are gut-wrenching. And we can talk about some of those. And meshing it with some of the statistics that we see coming out of the UK about Black motherhood, Black teenagers, the mm-hmm. Black mental health. And it's this great gift. It's this teaching tool, yes, but it's you. You, you literally took from, as my mom would say, like in a sort of Swahili translation, from your womb. You wrote it from like the remnants of your womb to get this out into the world. And it, it really shows. I just want to say thank you because... I think this is a book that everybody can get so much from all races, people of all races, people Mm -hmm. of all genders can get so much from this book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Because it was, it was tough. Yeah. So there were two incidences in your book and I'm about 70% through the book, but there were two and I'm, I'm about to hit a third one, a third incident that I know is going to make me, clutch my pearls or like have to put the book down right the first one was so continuing the story of getting the bugaboo when you actually found a secondhand one and you went to go buy it you went to go pick it up yeah and share that story the second one was what happened five days after giving birth to Esme your firstborn yeah um, absolutely terrifying the third one is the chapter I've just started where you've been called by Esme's school teacher to go to the school. And I'm like, what is about to happen? <laughs> I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I'm like, I know what's coming, but I don't, I just don't want to read it. <laughs> listen, listen. And it's so funny. A friend recently read it and she's like, girl, you don't let the reader breathe until like chapter three. <laughs> when I was like oh I can go and get grab a coffee <laughs> like how are you putting people in a chokehold from page two <laughs> right. Right. Yes. and I said to her it's I can't wait for people to read it because the book comes out May 28th and if people are ready to review it May 29th you have played yourself yeah. because I the writer I'm still grappling with what I've given people right so you know, I don't want to lie to anyone. It's not a gung-ho read. It's not a, I'm just going to chill out on a Saturday and read this cover to cover. Right. Because if you're really invested in it, you need to take breaks. Yeah. You need to allow yourself to feel whatever that book stirs up in you. Yeah. You need to go and have conversations with yourself and other people. And like I said, it's the book that ran me down because I'd gone through six proposals before yeah. finally 
submitting myself to this idea because every publisher was like, oh, can't she write about motherhood? And I was like, no, no. You guys are playing games with this motherhood parenting field and I don't want no part of that. You've really cheapened the industry here. Right, right. And the thing is, the entire book is about motherhood. (laughs) So, So the story of you, and not to give too much away, but you get this bugaboo, but you have to go buy it from a white woman in this sort of middle-class neighborhood that's been gentrified. And you're there with your sister, who I also had the pleasure of meeting. She's beautiful, amazing. And her her assumption when she opens the door is that you are a charity worker. You're five months pregnant. Yeah. So tired, (laughs) heavy, right? And then also being that bridge between or that wall between her and my sister because my sister will pounce my sister's like hold on what girl she did not just think and then her not allowing me in the house not wanting to take the chain off the door right just this rolling theme of microaggression right and I was like it threw me off in so many ways because I'm born and raised in London. I have turned up in an area that I have been to before through an ex-boyfriend. Right. It, it looked different back then, right. right? I was so blown away. And that was my first experience of feeling judged as mm. a mother. And the baby's not even here yet. Yeah, yeah, right. And, right. you know, I don't put it in the book, but I, I think the reader understands, like, I pushed that pushchair away thinking, well, now you see why I at least had to get the pushchair. Right, right. I'm here trying to buy a secondhand pram and being made to feel small for even that act. Right. Um, I knew in that moment my blackness really scared her. Mm. You know, my name's Candice Brathwaite. Very few people are like... They didn't know what to expect. And that really segues into a quote that I wrote down from your book around naming. And it was the moment when you're trying to choose a name for Esme. And the reason it stuck out for me was, I remember my mom saying to us growing up that she chose, you know, we're Muslim, so we were going to have Muslim names that were going to stick out anyway. But she said, I chose names that were simple and easy so that white people would find it easy to say your names and it wouldn't be difficult for them. And so the quote from your book, you say, we know that something as seemingly innocent as choosing a name for our child has to be carefully curated so it doesn't cause offense. Yeah. 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 And you have, you had, like you said, a name that can be racially ambiguous if you don't see the person, but your husband does not. At all. Right. And there was this internal and external struggle with me trying to honor his culture which by proxy is my culture that's right I think it shows through the book as well that for a long time I put being black British before being black or the idea of even being black Caribbean black African African right and now having a child with a West African man I was like Again, girl, you played yourself. And there's so much about the richness of your lineage and history that you perhaps weren't even prepared to investigate because white Britain had told you, don't do that. Don't do that. 
assimilation is the only way to make it through this game and to go halves on a child with a man who is born the majority is mind-blowing right 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 because he's not contending with the same things that you're contending with he's had a different conditioning growing up that informs how he sees the world and how he sees himself in the world I'm, I'm guessing as well yeah And then, so we were like two bulls all the time because, and only now as May 6, he's like, you're right. I truly didn't get it. Mm. I didn't get how so much of what you were trying to do with her name and the school she was going, was all about protection. Right. Because he was like, I was seeing it from my perspective. Right. That of a privileged African man who thinks his cloth is kingly wherever he goes. Right. And I have been raised in a space to feel like the minority mm. and to be small. And to have a child with someone like that, there has been an education on both sides. Right, right. But for the betterment of both of our children, mm. and even in naming Esme, it was really important to me that her middle name had meaning mm. and that she's really firm about what her last name is. Because in naming her, I just thought, oh, there's so much that I can teach her just through this act. And I don't, whilst I don't want to make life difficult for her from a job seeking uh, Western money making perspective, I want her to understand that when I die, should nature take its course in the way I hope it does, she knows that, oh no, mum told me it was okay to investigate this part of myself. Mm, mm, And I think mm. the strength of her name and whenever her Nigerian granddad greets her, it's with her full Nigerian name. I'm like, yeah, you get it. And Mm. that's very important to me because that's something I don't have. Right. Right, right, right. So how old was your husband when he came to the UK? How old was he? 18? Yeah, yeah. So he... (laughs) He's arrived, not even so fully formed, but also with the ego of someone in there. Right, 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 right. Because I'm thinking of, so my parents are East African immigrants to the UK, but in the late 70s. Right. They faced a lot of racism at that time. And though they grew up and lived the first part of their lives in Africa, they then met in the UK and had me and my brothers there. And so they were, especially my mom, very much like you, very much like got to get them into a good school, got to make sure their names are easy for other people to say, all of these things to protect us. And I write about a number of things in my book about the ways that she tried to protect us from white supremacy that were in complete love. And I think some of the only tools that she had at that time, which I'm grateful for. And at the same time, I'm grateful that I don't have to pass those same things on to my children, but it's, there are so many things to contend with. And I love my name, but I also wonder what if my name was Khadija or, you know, Fatima or anything else that was harder or heavier for people to say. And the name Layla, you don't know unless you know. Unless you know, right? Even though it is an Arabic name, it means night. That's what Layla means. It means night. But I've seen people of every race with that name. Yeah. Um, And my name as well, just like Candice, it doesn't make you think anything. Right, right. And then 
Brathwaite is usually incorrectly spelt Braithwaite. Right, right. Braithwaite is a Scottish name. Right, right. Like, oh yeah, Candice Braithwaite. Braithwaite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a Scottish gal is coming in and you come in. And it's just like, but, yeah. you know, from my dad's perspective, by the time I arrive, my foot's in the door. Yeah. Now I can wow yeah. you. You haven't immediately put my CV to the bottom of the pile. Right. because right. you can't my name. And, and Austin Channing, who I interviewed in season one of this podcast, who wrote the book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Blackness, says her parents named her Austin, partly because it was a name of a relative in her family, but also so that people would think on her CV that she was a white man. when yes. she, right. So these different ways that our parents try to protect us. And then we as parents try to protect our children. And the world that I'm wanting to build is a world where all of us get to live in the fullness of our humanity, where we don't have to make choices on that based on how other people, how dominant culture is going to perceive us and what stories they're going to start telling about us from just hearing the name. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about money. <laughs> and I say that looking like enviously, well, not enviously, because that's, that's not an energy that I want to project. I want to say proudly, proudly looking at your collection of designer bags in the background. And, you know, when I first started following you, and I think I'd heard about you because we're both published through the same publisher, something like that. And then not too far after that, you posted a post about money. And yeah. some of the practices that you had. And I was there like furiously scribbling notes on these manifestation practices that you do. And then me and my friend, Sharona Lautu, one of my dear friends, were then exchanging notes. Did you see Candice's post around the, <laughs> I got the app. Did you get the app? Right. And, <laughs> and what I love, love, love about you is you are so unapologetic in money and when the storyline around blackness being black is poverty, right? The storyline yeah. that dominant culture assumes about us. One of the things that me and my friends always say is we hate when we see things where it's an offer and it's like, if you're, you know, a person of color, we're going to give you a discount on this particular thing. And it makes the assumption that all of us are in a state where we don't have money, where we don't make money. Mm. You are somebody who is so unapologetic in making yeah. money. And you do it being you and yeah. not being something else to get that money. So it's like you hold yourself, Candice, in the fullness of your entire sort of outer identity in the ways that people see you, but also your inner self. And I'm going to make this money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to apologize to anyone, including other Black people about it right and that's the other conversation right around internalized oppression and what we think that we're you know worthy of having and how much money we're worthy of, of making yeah and tell I, me about your journey around that it's been a rocky road and my mum specifically just bad energy with money yeah and it's weaved in little bits through the book, but days would come and the bailiffs come before school and you've got to hide and crouch down in the bathroom. And I knew from about my mid-teens, I knew I was like, I am completely in control of this feeling. And the minute I work out how to do my job every day with a smile on my face, the feeling of poverty will not touch my shoulder ever again. 
I knew that, but I'm trying to be really clear about the fact that the feeling came before the facts did. Mm. I didn't know how. I didn't know how. I don't come particularly from a line of people who know what best to do with their money, but I was like, I'm going to learn. I'm going to figure it out. I'm just going to get myself in the best position to attract this Mm. and we will go the rest of the way. And it's so funny now, especially at this specific time with this pandemic, I tell my management all the time, don't come to me with no feelings about fear around my income because I don't receive it. I'm like, Mm. I can't hear you. And it's so funny in the last week, I've signed some deals that have really made my eyes water. And I'm like, now, as we are in this global, (laughs) we're in this global crackdown where people are really feeling it for their purse, but I just don't speak that language Mm. because I've been there and it, poverty does not align with where I'm trying to take my family. It's literally a conversation I can't afford to have. Right. And also I've really grown my faith in money and mm. how deserving I am of it. Right. And I, I must admit that whilst people might not see it as such, that feeling, the feeling of me being worthy is really what turns the stomachs of a lot of white people who have a problem with me. That's right. So let's talk about that because when I, so when I did first get to know you and I was, or know of your account and was following you very quickly after that, there was a whole drama that kicked off. And what I saw was disgusting, which was you being attacked by other white mummy bloggers and people in that space. And I was looking at it and I was like, they're mad. I don't even know the details, but I know this is a woman who is unapologetically black, dark skinned black. Right, short cropped hair, okay, <laughs> in a beautiful, loving marriage with a beautiful family, and she makes money, and we're seeing her make money, and that's got to make some people feel some kind of way because the attack that came for you was not normal at all. And there were lines like there was this website where one of them was speaking about me under a a pseudonym. And one of the lines that really stuck out for me was I liked her so much better when she was poor. Like just hold that for a minute. You know, I have been gracious enough and it is grace for a black woman to show up on the internet and share her life. I have been gracious enough to let you behind the scenes of my life and for you to watch this growth. Right. But you, it hurt you that bad that you had to express that, you know, I was feeling her in the struggle. Right. Because it's, who are you to make that money when I'm not making it and you're black? And you're black. Right. And she's still in a relationship. My God, let's call someone. It showed up in that trolling situation in a way that it took the wind out of me. It took the wind out of me. I, I watched it go down and I it literally pulled the rug under my, because I know what that's like for people to come after you. And then the way in which it was done, I was like, they are trying to weaponize something in her past against her. But all it does, especially in the way that you spoke about it, was make me say, I'm so glad that I follow this woman. Aww. That's all it made me feel. I was just like, 
This is an example of how to show up in your full humanity. Yeah. You're not going to shame me into silence. That was it. Right. And with white people of that caliber, I think the trick they're missing is, do you know how many hurdles I have had to clear to even be here? Girl, your little games ain't going to throw me out. So let's just cut to the scene where you are on the floor of the boxing ring. (laughs) And and I'm just getting my check and and walking off. And that's what happened. That's all that happened because it was, I Google your name. I see it coming up in all of these news and media. And that's enough to really take a person out. Like it's enough. I had a minder call me and be like, your full name is in my Sunday paper. And I just, and you know, we set out on this journey as black women, knowing intrinsically what the task is. Right. Sometimes even telling God, listen, you need to bring it down a touch because I am <laughs> ready. Let asking. me breathe. <laughs> bring it down right I'm not can, ready. We, can we stretch out the timeline a little bit like <laughs> for what you're asking of me right at the last quarter of last year I really felt like God was just propped up in my doorway like sis come on now this is really your chance to do the work Mm-hmm. to put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. You're quick to tell people, don't let your past own you. You're yeah. quick to tell people, strive for more. Okay, Come up then. Right. Right. And it did. Even though I did publicly, it was so traumatic personally. I can't imagine. I've had a small experience, nothing like what you have experienced. And all I saw in you showing up in your truth and saying this and this and this is what my actual truth is. And all I saw was a flood of support come to you. Because first of all, we, we could see what was actually happening. Yes. And secondly, <laughs> you spoke your truth, right? But when you said about, they don't realize how much you've already had to overcome. When you spoke about like your relationship with money, you had to overcome your mother's story around money you had to overcome your experiences growing up around money. And you also had to overcome what society is telling you and what we as women of all races, stories oh, we have yeah. around money. So there's, yeah. ma- there's many things happening, right? And you were able to get to where you are now. So when something like that comes, it's like, I've had to work so hard to heal. You cannot take my healing away from me. Cannot. Right. You cannot. And, um, That for me, coming out of the end of last year and still being here this year, it was transformative. What do you feel it gave you? What do you feel is different pre and post that you... What do I feel is different? Just a new, literally a new level of freedom Mm. at the time. And, you know, I have to do air quotes. With whoever tried to use my past to shame me, at the time, of course, I was angry. Now I am so I am so grateful, so grateful. I even leave money on the offering plate. I'm like, bless them. Because I would not have had the courage to do that myself. Right. I was grappling for years on that right. subject. Sometimes even going to bed and thinking, oh, you know, if this story breaks tomorrow, girl, you've really screwed it. Mm. And even though I was so scared and so worried, the favor they have done me is insurmountable. Right. 
but you don't really get to hold that feeling until you've cleared, got way past the hurdle, out the arena. Right. And now I'm out of the arena. I just feel so free. Mm. I turn up to meetings not wondering if someone's whispering about, and even in the midst of that hoopla, every single brand I worked with were messaging me like, we don't care. Right. (laughs) And we're going to sign you up next year with even more money. And do you feel that's because of how you showed up in your life up until that point from a real sense of being fully yourself, being very transparent and very authentic? Do you feel that's why? Because you know, brands can be fickle. <laughs> you know, they can be like, uh, I don't want to be a part of this actually, or we're having second thoughts. As much as we feel like as a society, we're moving forward and we're doing all these great things. I feel like for any brand to sign up a bullhead, dark skinned black woman, you already... You made some calculations, right? <laughs> you already really sat down. Right and had some kind of thinking process behind wanting me to represent your brand. Right. And for some reason, I think it added a little je ne sais quoi. It's like, oh. Do you think that if this had happened five years ago, there would have been the same response? And I ask this because the space that you're in is notoriously white, as is many spaces, period. We have seen, I mean, we're in 2020, there's a way that I know I can have a conversation called me and white supremacy in a way that I couldn't have had it five years ago because people were not ready for that conversation, right? And we're not ready for the person holding that conversation to look like me, right? So do you feel like if this had happened five years ago and there's less consciousness around these topics that it might've gone in a different direction? Completely. The timing of which, and for anyone at home, is like, like, what is this? So I used to be a sex worker. And the timing of which this expose happened was so full of mastery. It's only on God's timing. That's right. Because me too, sex work, just all these conversations are now coming above the fold. Right. And I had so many women in my DMs that night, and so many women who are very prolific in the areas which they work, who have met me since that time, and grabbed my hand and been like, girl, you know I used to be a sex worker, right? And I live in fear every day. Wow. That someone is going to do to me what they did to you. And to see you not only come through that, but come out smelling like Tom Ford perfume. That's right. <laughs> That's then right. I, I sleep a bit easier. Like not mm. if, but when. When, right. not destroy me. And you have to trust the timing of God, universe, whatever you mm. want to in, in times like that. Yeah. Because going public with that post, I was shaked, shaking. Right. Like it makes me emotional now thinking about it. I remember. And I just was, my heart went out to you because all I felt was love for you. But I was like, I cannot imagine the state that she was in when she wrote this because yeah, to other people, our secrets are not such a big deal. Right. But to us, they're everything. And within seconds, this virtual love that just flooded my home, my virtual space, my real home. Yeah. I woke up the next day, like, just on such a high 
knowing that whoever had did that to me had seen that. Right. That, right. I actually just, you know, I sat up in bed and I thought, what else you got? Right. You know, it really makes me think of Maya Angelou, who had this huge, like, we only, and especially when she's whitewashed, we only like to think of her as this eloquent poet and writer and speaker and sort of this ancestress with this ancestral Mm -hmm. elder energy. She did some things, if you've read her books, that... Uh, you can say Maya, Maya Angelou. Are you sure? <laughs> friends that night, but just not ridden. I right. couldn't even communicate because word had got to my management team first that this person was like really ferocious. They'd emailed all the brands I worked with and were like, "How could you work with someone like this?" And I, I was angry with myself because I'd been telling my management team for a while that I wanted to lead with this story for mm. a good six months and mm. everyone around me was like no 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 no, no. it's fine it's fine mm. and I was you were ready to own your truth right furious because I was like how could we let someone get out the gate before us like right. I was so mad but when I again in retrospect I'm like it happened the way it was meant to happen right because even though I felt loved and I feel loved there are still some things that the world are not ready to let black women get away with on their time. Yeah. And the world might not have been so gracious. Right. If I were like, guys, I've got this thing to tell you. Right. But the combination of being a black dark skinned woman who had this invisible noose around her neck. Right. That, I can't be sure, but I'm more than likely it was a white person. Salacious. Right. Right. The combination of those things Mm. made everyone of all races be like, no, 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 no. Right. Right. And the common consensus was you get to tell your story. That's right. That was what I felt. Like you can't shame me from my story. You know, (laughs) I've literally been dragged into the light naked by someone else. Right. Someone to this day who I don't know. Right. And it speaks to, and and again, I mean, people will say, oh, it's just, you know, something wrong with her. But honestly, as an outsider looking in, you can see it for what it is, which is this black woman, bold, money-making, really industry-changing, being uplifted, elevated, elevating herself and those who are left behind. Instead of saying, she inspires me, saying, who is she? Who, who does she get to, why does she get to be like that? And there's another quote in your book and you, you said, my own experiences and those of black women I know mean that we have a first class degree in making ourselves small. Yeah. Yeah. Before you even arrive in the venue, you're overthinking your clothes, not because of how you feel about them, right. but what the thoughts are going to be, oh, what cadence in my voice should I use today? there are some words I need to leave at the door because they could be perceived as too ghetto. Right. Before you've even left your house. Right. You're talking yourself up whilst also talking yourself in because, well, if I say that, oh, I don't want them to think I've got ahead of myself. Mm. And it's just this constant song in my head. Right. And only now 
And I'm not even God's bare life. I'm not even a quarter of a way through That's right. my life's journey. Right. But only now I'm like, oh, let's change this song. This, this is terrible music. And I'm only playing it for someone else. And I cannot afford my children to hear this song. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Because like I said, I'm just about to read this chapter on Esme. And I've just had a conversation last week with my friend Monique Melton, who's an anti-racist educator, but also a mother. Her children have had experiences of racism at school. I don't think there's anybody who hasn't. There are certain things that we have to brace ourselves for, that we know that our children are going to have to experience the first time. And we can't protect them from what happens at school, on the playground, something they even just see on the TV or on the internet, but there are certain things that we can instill into their mind about their self-worth. What are some of those things that you're doing? I know Esme is at six, but she's very, (laughs) I watched an interview and you said at four, you had to tell her about periods because she she found your tampons (laughs) (laughs) and she needed to know. Mama, do you wear a nappy? What is what is this? Like she knows when you're trying to bluff, so right. I don't even bother. Right. With S, my parenting style is very. I'm gonna be it before I say it. Mm. I was told a lot growing up, but never necessarily got to see it in action. Mm. And so, even though I like wearing my hair this short, it's part of my parenting journey. It's part of a tactic. Mm. I do not mind if Esme grows up and she's 20, 25 and wants to wear some Remy weave to her backside. But let it be known that you are always around a mum who you saw celebrate her natural hair. Right. Who you saw celebrate herself in her most natural form. Right. So when I see you experimenting, I in my heart am going to know that's all it is. Yeah. It couldn't possibly come from a place of feeling like you're not worthy. Right. Or you see black beauty be celebrated because that's all that's in this house all the that's time. That's all you're going to see all the time. Right. That's, right. That's all you see. I don't mind her library being varied, but I'm very insistent about books where dark skinned black kids are the main character. That's right. I need that. I don't yeah. mind her toys being varied, but I go to Helen High Water sourcing black dolls with natural hairstyles. Right. These things cost an arm and a leg, but I feel like they're worth it because I'm up against Disney and Netflix and and the playground. And, you know, and And even, and even when, I mean, because let's talk about colorism, even when there are characters on the TV or dolls, they're the light skinned versions of blackness and not the dark skinned version. And And I, yeah. I'm also aware, and I don't speak about it much, but of course I'm aware of it. I'm aware that Esme's lighter. Mm. And I'm already trying to position myself for a conversation about colorism, where it's understanding that she profits from that diagram. Right. right. And I don't want to appear in that moment to be the aggressor. That's right. But I need her to understand that, baby, there is something that's been in place and will be in place that actually says that just because of your skin tone, you're made to feel more beautiful than me, your own mum. Right. We need to have a conversation about this. Right. And that's weird. Mm. That's strange. Yes. And I'm sure because for her, you're just, you're just mum. 
It's just mom. Right? She's not noticing different, like, hues of blackness. She is. She is, is she? Okay. It was really warm, and we were in the garden, and yeah. she had the sun dance on her skin, and she said, Mom, don't wake me. I need to wake up as dark as you. Yeah. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Who notices? Notice. Right, right. She hasn't yet made a meaning out of it other than there's difference. Exactly. Right, right. And so I'm already like, right, there's a conversation that needs to happen there. Mm. Her cousin, my niece, is my skin tone, mm. but has less kinks in her hair. Right, yeah. So Esme's like, oh, yeah. Mom, I don't know what word to use, but my locks feel really rough. Right. And his hair feels really smooth. Right. And so it's like... He's trying to make sense of it. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. And all I can do is tell the truth and prepare for the world trying to lie. Right. And this is so important about preparing them before they go and find a story out there that, that is not empowering to her and that could put her in a position where she causes harm exactly. to somebody else, right? I mean, exactly. we've had it when you're talking about hair. My hair is completely different to Maya's hair, my daughter, because we are mixed African and Arab, but my husband is more, his family seems to have more Arab genes than African. So they have yeah. straighter hair. Mm. And so she has sort of what you would call type three, maybe sort of yeah. twirly hair that can be, <laughs> and people always go, oh, it's so pretty. How do you do it like that? And I have type four, all different types of type four all over my head, right? <laughs> Very kinky, coily yeah. hair. And what's interesting though is, especially when I stopped wearing the hijab and started wearing my hair naturally, shaved it all off and then grew it natural. She's always been, I wish I had your hair. See? Yeah, you see? And I'm like, that's so interesting because the world is going to tell you your hair is more beautiful than my hair. But she's like, no, your hair grows like this. She sees a crown. And I'm always like, look at the curls. We're popping today, right? And she's just like, I've just got these limp, you know, <laughs> this limp hair falling oh. down. <laughs> and, no, and I don't think for both of us, they won't understand how rare having mums like this is. Yeah. It's still rare. Yes. Yes. No matter what country or continent you come from, as Black women, this energy is still rare. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in our culture, having my hair is no. Because there's a lot of internalized racism. We're mixed Arab-African, and there's a history of enslavement that, that is a part of that story, and of seeing the African side as lesser than. So if you have hair that looks like mine, you're yeah. more African, which is not a good thing. Right. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. Anti-blackness is a global phenomenon. Yeah. Because you touched on this briefly. Esme specifically has been sent here to teach me some things. Mm. And I have to allow that to happen privately and publicly. Because in the house I grew up in, aside from my granddad, it was very kids should be seen and not heard. And you don't have an, an opinion and your ideas aren't valid. Right. And Esme came into my life <laughs> at a time when I fully needed to be cracked wide open. Right. And many of my Caribbean friends will be like, oh, you're raising her very... <laughs> I'm like, 
very, say white. very free. <laughs> white is the word, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, because I have been the damaged teenager. Yeah. Because I I didn't get to have that. I didn't get to have honest conversations with my mum or my grandmother. Right. And I cannot pass that down to her. I love that you brought this up though, around your friends basically wanting to say raising her white, but not wanting to say the word white. And I think there is a meaning behind that, which is she has a sense of entitlement, perhaps. Mm -hmm. She's free to speak her mind however she chooses. And you would not try and squash that down, make it small, tell her to be quiet. Why is it that only white people get to have that? We're talking about, we don't want to live in a world where we're treated as lesser than. Mm-hmm. My children should be able to, yeah, there should be respect. But at the same time, how can I complain about something a white kid does, but not give my kid the freedom to fully be themselves? Exactly. Right. Like you always say, in all of her humanity, which is not always cute. No. It's not cute <laughs> no. to go back and forth with a kid in Tesco's about why they can't have Lucky Charms or whatever. Right. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the time out to walk you through this. Yeah. And we're going to have a conversation. And I think one of my big yes moments were my father-in-law was here, Nigerian, very Nigerian. He was eating dinner in the living room and he called Esme to come and collect his plate. Okay. <laughs> and you were like, and all my sirens went off. Yeah. And Esme was like, Granddad, I'm not I'm I'm not doing that. Wow. And it was and it's still to this day like a really big moment for me and in our house. Yeah. Because she went back and forth with him. She was like, Granddad, I love you, but your legs aren't broken. So let's talk about happening. <laughs> like, he, he literally had smoke coming out of him. Like, eh? I'm going back and forth with this small girl. Like. <laughs> and then to just make it even more layered, Bode comes along and takes the plate. Mm. And I was just sitting in the kitchen, just doing a dance of joy. Right. That had to happen. Yeah. That had to happen. Yeah. Because it's not lack of respect because two weeks later he went home and I'd finished eating in front of the TV. Yeah. And without even noticing it, she was like, mum, you're done with your plate. Do you want me to take that? Wow. It's not lack of respect. No, no. It's just that already at six, she was like, mm, that doesn't feel good to right. me. Right. And that instilling that sense of what feels good and yeah. critical thinking. Like, you just said, <laughs> why? Why do I have to? Yeah. You can walk. You're not unwell. Right. Right. And so for me, like, that isn't a perfect example of what I'm trying to do. And I know that is not to every Black household's taste. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I know with my mom, who she, she, my mom cracks me up. So my mom is retired from her career, but works. I always tell her like, she, she is like an empress. Like she runs a international empire of various businesses around the world, but does so from her home. Um, but is very much so a like grandmother, grandmother, right? Yeah. So yeah, have the kids every day. It's no problem with me. 
all is fine. So she's been taking them during this pandemic because they don't live very far from us, which yeah. is such a godsend for me because otherwise I wouldn't get any work done. But I tried to get her to share some of the homeschooling with Mohammed, my youngest, who's five. And so the first day I did part of it with him at home. And then I said, I'm just sending you these sheets, which he just has to fill out. And that's it. She called me that afternoon and said, do not send me any of these things again, because I'm very African in the way that I teach. (laughs) And he is like very Western in his way of, so he's like, Bibi, which is grandmother in Swahili. Bibi, you don't know. That's not the way we're supposed to do it. And she's thinking, back when I was teaching your mom, right? And when I was learning, this is the way it is. And then there's Maya who's watching and she's kind of the peacemaker. She's a Libra. So she's very much a peacemaker. Muhammad is very much a Gemini. (laughs) And he's like, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) (laughs) And and Maya's there like, Muhammad. That's mama's mom, right? And he's like, I'm going to tell my mom. And she's like, that's mama's mom. <laughs> You're going to tell him mama's mom, okay? <laughs> Clash of cultures. He came home that day and he's like, mama, I don't like the school of BB. No, Thumb, thumbs down. Thumbs down. Make me go again. <laughs> moment to know they had their say. Yeah, he's like, no, this isn't working for me. So we can do the homework at home with you. You see, you get the way that I like to learn, (laughs) right? He's like, she's asking me questions that aren't even on the thing, you know? I love him. That is his energy. That is when we look at some people like, I don't see that question here. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all in different stages and it's different generations as well. but. You know, when we talk about the idea of being a good ancestor for me, it really does start in my relationship with my children and then what gets passed down along the lines based on the healing that I choose to do in this lifetime and that I have the privilege to do in this lifetime because of the past healing that people who've come before me have done. There are certain things that I, I really hope and I pray that my children, my children's children don't have in their consciousness and their understanding of themselves. Yes. or of other Black people in the world, based on the healing that we're doing now. Amen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so we talked about Esme. I want to talk a little bit about RJ. Yeah. Before we wrap up our conversation. So RJ's your son, yes. baby boy, who is your spitting image. Like, when I saw his picture the other day, I'm like, what is she talking about? He looks like his dad. He is her copy-paste. <laughs> he is you. Um, that boy. Oh. That boy. Yeah. And you write about you write about in your book that a key decision that you made was mm. moving out of London because you were having a baby boy, a yes. black baby boy. Yeah. I love London with all my heart, specifically South London and Brixton. And I know the pandemic's happening and corona's happening, but the pandemic for me before that was the culture of youth stabbing yeah. in London. And People would say that I'm fascinated with things that are usually morbid, and I am. Before he was even in my womb, I kept a very close eye on the growing trend Mm. of gang culture and specifically stabbing. And I was always racking my brain about the why and the how and how could this be stopped. And I think I became even more engrossed in it because my brother is 14 years younger than me. 
Right. So you're very much a second mother to both your siblings, right? Yeah. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah. And so he's 18 now. So he's in prime position. Mm -hmm. So much of the violence happening in London. And there's a chapter in the book called Young, Gifted and Stabbed. Yeah. And I sat through 19 hours of footage of black children just hacking each other to death. Such deep traumatic work that there was oftentimes Bode, Papa B would pull me away from the computer and be like, yeah, we're not doing that tonight. Right. Waking up screaming. So I'm not having... Because you wrote about things that I didn't even know were trends or things that are happening. And especially in the age of social media. Yeah. Yeah. It's an actual... Gang culture is an actual game to them, a game that has a scoreboard and a chart and right. a leaderboard, and you're scored on where you stab people and how badly you can mutilate them. Like, it's it's such an underworld in my consciousness. Right. But I sat through funeral footage and, and footage of mums going into morgues crying over their sons, and and I was like, I'm not doing that. Whatever it takes to ensure that I am not crying over RJ's lifeless 14, 15, 16-year-old body, we're doing it now. And leaving London had always been a conversation between us as a couple, but I did not feel that urgency until Mm. I knew I was having a boy. I was like, oh, we're going now. And we put ourselves in debt for that move. Because whenever I speak about black people specifically leaving London, I have to honour my privilege in that moment. Yeah. Leaving London's a privilege. Leaving the city where you've got extended family and and that idea of support is a privilege. And there are many people who are stuck on the 19th floor of a horrendous situation who want to go who can't. Right. So I can't, like, get on my white horse and be like, oh, I'm out of here. No. Right. privilege even taking on the debt we literally used like a loan shark right. to fund our move at that time right utter privilege but With utter urgency as well like that <gasps> sense of urgency that you would put yourself in that position as well because you didn't just have the money available right you had to leverage these different means it was so urgent for you yes that it couldn't wait no Mm. Never, it's so funny I'm a, I'm a born and raised London RJ's never been on a red bus wow. he's never been on a bus <laughs> right he's never been on a bus right and my mum still lives in Walthamstow and my, my sister still lives in Brixton and when he's in these environments his little body swivels you yeah. know the, he's just the senses it's just so much for him yeah and that's what it's like for me in London I grew up in Cardiff and then in Swindon, right? So, and I had cousins who were in London who were younger than me, but a lot more street smart than me. So, <laughs> so me in London every time is just like, sort of like this, because I just was so sheltered that I didn't have those experiences. They had to grow up very young, like very quickly. And this yeah. is it. And yeah. now when I go back into London for work, I am so on my guard. I laugh at myself. Right. Like you weren't there before. You have no right. I love certain watches. And the minute I get off the train, my watch is off. It's in right. my bag. Right. It's everything zipped up. If you're in a backpack, could you put it in your front? And right. my 
It's like, what are you? Right. <laughs> are you like, right? <laughs> and I'm like, listen. But even though she laughs at me, my heart breaks for her mm. because I think I've said this to you before. A 16-year-old was stabbed outside my sister's house, and my four-year-old niece had to hop over a body bag to go to school. And when I spoke to my sister about that, her blase, like, this is the only chapter I well up about, her blaseness about it. Right. She was like, sis, it's life. And I'm just like, whose life is that? Right. Whose life is that? Right. Because you can't imagine Esme or RJ and how they're processing something like that. Right. Right. And you know, my niece asked her, Mommy, is the person under there dead? You're four. This should not be what you're ingesting on the way to school. Right. In London, especially the gap between the rich and the poor right. or those who be perceived as rich and not see the poor right. is now so wide, you know, people will refer to their areas as a little bit stabby. Right. And let's talk about, because something that we see in the media a lot is, oh, Blacks just like killing each other, right? This is Black on Black crime and it's just a thing that Black people do. And it has no context of the impact of racism and poverty, right, in creating situations like this. Give us the wider picture. So in Brixton, my hometown, there is like a market, and I didn't even know this till I started doing research. That market was acquired in 2018 for £37.3 million. Wow. The school, the local high school in Brixton that same year had the highest number of black boys being expelled from school permanently. Wow. The fish market has been acquired for over 30 million and these children are being pushed out of the school system because that's what it is. Right. It always comes with a layer of, oh, he didn't listen, right. too interactive, right. all of that. Noise. Right, the adultification, but, right, which I write about in Me and White Supremacy, the adultification of Black children. children. They're seen as older than their age, less innocent, are punished at yeah. higher rates, given less support. Right. And so when I saw that on paper, I was like, and then... In 2018, the youngest stab victim was 14. And to see the way white people specifically spoke about this child online, well, that's what you get. What does a 14-year-old get? A 14-year-old was stabbed 17 times. What does a 14-year-old get? Please enlighten me as you then go to your oyster and champagne bar in the middle of Brixton while he was probably on his way to a pupil referral unit. Please tell me what they get because Brixton specifically is an area that none of you wanted to frequent back in the day. That's right. I mean, when I hear of like certain areas in London that, you know, I've never lived there, but I'm like, oh, I know what the reputation of that place was before. And I know who was the majority of the people living there now. And I go there now and I'm like, what's happening here? This doesn't match up with what I thought this place would look like. Yeah. Or who I thought would be the majority of the people here. Right. 
And because, you know, it's all a loop because black people don't have that financial education or that financial support. Those of us who did set up businesses in Brixton didn't know how to protect them. We're not protected. Right. When someone comes and buys this lane for 30 million, we're out of here. Right. With nothing, no savings, no protection. Right. And there are 70 year old black people who are having to start again. And you would know this when if you're gonna write a book of this magnitude, I was like, oh, I have to tighten up the fortress because I I can't afford for it to just be written off as hearsay. Right. Or how I feel. That's right. That's right. No, you gotta bring the receipts, the facts, the research, everything. I'm not just imagining it, right? And also I'm thinking about how for so many of us, we're only second or third maybe fourth generation. So when we think about like what I was saying earlier, building that multi-generational wealth, or at least a multi-generational cushion, that means that there are certain things, certain choices that you're going to be able to make, right? So I think about my parents moving to the UK from East Africa, meeting there. They worked so hard to make sure that my brothers and I had the things that we had. And it's so interesting when I have conversations with my younger brother because he grew up very differently than I did. I grew up more in the UK than he did, but he's lived more in the UK in his adult life than I have. So he's reading my book and he's just like, but I don't remember these things. And I'm like, yeah, because by the time it got to you, (laughs) this was a different experience that you were having, you know? And he's like, but I feel like we do have white privilege. I'm like, no, 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 no. We have class privilege economic privilege, but not because our parents inherited it from somewhere, but because they worked their asses off in the face of systemic institutional racism that says they shouldn't have had it, right? So when I think about being a good ancestor, money is a part of that because it gives choices, it gives access, it gives the possibilities to be able to choose how you want to live your life instead of being funneled into a story and narrative that dominant culture creates for us. Completely. And this this white Christian idea of, you know, money being the root of all evil and all that jazz, I'm like, I need my people to get hit to these lies. Right. Because money has been very helpful in me now protecting my family. That's right. And I want that for everyone, but more to the point, I really want that for those who look like me. Right, that's right. we've not yet had the chance to relax in the freedom that that brings. Yeah. And we deserve that. You deserve it. And, and that's the constant conversation I have with black women. I'm like, you deserve this? Right. And don't do that thing where you're like, oh yeah, but I didn't really work hard that day. No, the no, no. Imposter syndrome? All you have been through in your ancestors' network, you don't understand how in the red this universe is to you. That's right. Don't now get the heebie-jeebies when you're getting paid really well and in your mind you're like, but I didn't find that hard. Right. Something else did. That's such a story, right? That is such a story that so many of us have that if it came too easy... It must not be mine, right? If <laughs> it came too easy, I must not really deserve it. And we have to cut that shit out. 
the struggle yeah. mentality. And it didn't come e- it didn't come easy. That's the thing. <laughs> it didn't come easy. <laughs> I tell my friends all the time. I'm like, hey, you think I'm making money now? The universe has not caught up with what it owes me yet. Right. So there will be days when it feels like making this money is easy. Yeah. And so it damn should be. Yeah. Are yeah. you tired of tweaking? even mentally. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that stereotype and that archetype of the strong black woman who is always toiling and getting very little in return. One of the things that you talk about in your book is the pyramid structure. <laughs> yeah. Walk us through what that pyramid is. You know, I don't even know how that pyramid came to mind and I just drew it out one day. But in my mind, I see the world as a pyramid and at the very top of the pyramid are white men. And you know, it goes down as we know it does. Yeah. But what I always tell people, I don't even see black women on the pyramid. That, and that was the part that got me, right? So you said white men, white women, other people of color, black men. So I was like, okay, you were like, we're black women. I was like, on the base. And you were like, no, not on the base, right? (laughs) Where are they? Like, in my mind, black women are the pillars holding this pyramid up. Right. Who don't even get to come above soil. You don't even see us on the base. Right. And so when I talk to black women and I'm like, hun, believe, get your money up, do this, do that. It's because I want you to come up for air. That's right. This living beneath the ground, yeah. you're going to get an eternity to do that once you're dead. I don't want right. to talk about that right now. Yeah. We're trying to get on this pyramid. Yeah. And when you even start to like taste the air and the food and the climate, you're going to want to keep climbing mm. because being underground whilst breathing sucks. Right. It sucks. It's slow dying. Yeah. Yeah. You know how this conversation just energizes me. I do. Because especially as a dark-skinned black woman, I'm like, if I can reap from changing my own mindset, Mm. oh, come on now, girls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Yeah, and that's what it is, is that you give me permission when I see you shining, when I see you making deals, rocking the brands, I mean, everything. I'm just like, it's, it's a reminder to me that's in you too. You deserve that too. All of us deserve that. Thank you, Candice, for being an example of what it looks like to own that, the physical stuff. That physical stuff doesn't own you, first of all. Exactly. And that the physical has come out clearly as a, a physical manifestation of the center that you're holding within. Completely. Right. And this isn't to say, oh girl, I've got so much work to do. And it's a lifelong journey, right? Because you're just getting started as I am. We're just getting started. And there's so many things that I'll come back to and I'm like, damn it. I thought I worked that out. I thought I, (laughs) where did that come from? Right. As your deals get bigger, as your dreams get bigger, the nervousness, the palpitations go up. Like, okay, we got to talk that imposter syndrome down and we have to yes. work through why I'm feeling uncomfortable about this. Right. Yeah. And God is in the doorway again, like, oh yeah. God, but you said you were worthy. So 
<laughs> so just take it. Like what's <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I just want to thank you. This conversation has been so beautiful and it filled me up so much and I knew it would do. I love you and I respect you so much for the way that you hold yourself in the world, for the legacy that you're creating for your children, your family, your children's children's children, um, but also for all of us Black women and Black people and all people around the world because of the way that you hold yourself and the work that you do within yourself. I really, really just want to say thank you for being you. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for you. No, you're gonna make me cry now. She knows I can cry. She does it on purpose, people. <laughs> such a crier. No, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been amazing. And it's I've said it publicly already, but it's been very interesting to have conversations with black women and white women about this yeah. book. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it is for everyone, but first and foremost, it's for the culture. Yeah. Always. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. the conversations I have with my sisters are very different yeah. because we're reading these things and it's pulling out things in us. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the point. That's, that's the it. Point. That's it. And what I got from your book, one of the things, one of the many things that I got from your book is the reminder that Black women are not a monolith and that we get to define our own selves as individual Black women while also being connected to each other in our shared experiences. And, yes. and that was, yeah, that was a gift in itself. Thank you. Yay. Okay, <laughs> Candice, our, our final question for you. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? You know, I will know once I am on the other plane because I will know I've cracked it if I'm called upon. Oh, yes. Someone on this earthly plane as we know it calls upon me, that's when I know I've done it. Because I can't lie, there are some ancestors I, no, I'm like, you're good, it's fine. Right, I just... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, kinfolk, it is fine. Yeah. If I have the privilege of being asked to assist my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my own children before it's time, I'm just going to be up there, in there, like, you go, you did it. Because people trust in you, even when they can't see you. You know, I don't want to be blasphemous, but that high energy, that is them believing in me, even when I'm not there. I've never heard it put that way. And I'm literally going to store that in my brain, lock it away. I got chills hearing that answer because one of the ancestors who comes to me again and again is my maternal grandmother. And she is an energy that I call upon. And I never thought about it that way. Of It's not just about how I'm remembered for the things that I've done, but if people in their moment of, you know what, I need ancestor Layla like I need her energy. I need her guidance in this moment. I need her example. That's huge. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Yeah. And I didn't even know I was going to say that, but that's genuinely how I feel. That's literally made it's, me sit you know, up straighter. The, the, <laughs> yeah. The testament of our work is when we're not here to back it up. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much, Leila. Thank you. This was marvellous.
This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a good ancestor.